0: From the conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Pictures of the violence in Alice Springs have shocked Australians in recent weeks. Today, the Federal and Northern Territory governments have announced the re-imposition of alcohol bans in Indigenous communities in the Territory. The federal government is also providing $250 million in assistance for various programs. This follows Anthony Albanese's recent lightning visit to Alice Springs and a quickly completed report by the Northern Territory Public Servant which recommended that the ban should be brought back. The bans lapsed under federal legislation last year. Albanese wanted them reimposed, but the Northern Territory government, which considered bans to be racist, was somewhat reluctant. Nevertheless, it had little choice but to fall into line with the Prime Minister. Malandiri McCarthy is Labor Senator for the Northern Territory and Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians. A former journalist, she also served in the Northern Territory Parliament, including as Minister for Children and Families. Malindiri McCarthy joins us today to talk about the situation in Alice Springs and in the territory more generally, as well as the referendum for The Voice. Senator, could we just start by your giving us a picture of the Alice Springs situation and do you think that the reimposition
1: of the alcohol bans will make a significant difference? It is a significant moment for Central Australia, Michelle, that uh, we see these bans in place. What we've witnessed over the last few weeks in particular are scenes that show us that the urgency that's required does need a circuit breaker. And when the Prime Minister came and we were able to see the Northern Territory Government Introduce the weekend bans for the takeaway outlets and also reduce the hours during the week. Did give an immediate relief. Obviously, not a perfect one, but one that said we are going to continue to work on it. So I'm very pleased with the announcement today. What's the situation
0: in other parts of the Territory? We don't actually hear much from those
1: areas, the more remote areas, but Are they in a bad way also? There is no doubt we do have issues with alcohol across the Northern Territory, but I'm also seeing it on our borders as well with Western Australia and also with Queensland. And what it says to me, not only as the Senator for the Northern Territory or indeed even as an Assistant Minister in Indigenous Affairs, just as a Yanual woman, I see that for First Nations families and communities that. The need in the bush has become so great and the inadequacy of supporting the remote and regional areas results in what we're seeing now with people moving to bigger towns and cities and looking for a future. So I think there's a deeper issue here about what is the future for these Australians who require jobs, uh, who require hope for what the future looks like but also require a safe place for their children and families to grow up in.
0: Now, the government has announced today also $250 million for a range of initiatives from employment to health uh, and to the preservation of culture. Can you give us some idea of uh, what's involved here? Will the money all be delivered through Indigenous bodies and will the initiatives involve full consultation?
1: Well there's two elements of that, one is that yes, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations must be at the forefront of being involved with the delivery of those services, but also just included with their knowledge of the local area. So in Central Australia where the package is focusing on, of course those organisations there must and should be at the table. In terms of what's involved in the package, I've been terribly concerned around the health component, When I look at the issues with alcohol, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in particular, we did a Senate inquiry on that a few years ago that showed this is an enormous issue across Australia, but certainly in those families uh, where alcohol is so prevalent. If we can touch on that with very serious uh, focus with Congress, uh, the Aboriginal uh, Medical Centre in Alice Springs, I think that will go a long way to assisting those families who have young people that perhaps do not know how to cope uh, because they are experiencing FASD. Do you think uh,
0: the issue here is educating women about this
1: potential risk? Absolutely. You know, when we look at the debate over the previous years of whether there should be a a labelling on alcohol about the impact of alcohol on pregnant women, you know, that was a no-brainer. Of course there should be labelling on alcohol about the impact of drinking while you're pregnant we have to continue that and obviously do so within uh, languages that people you know can understand we have over 100 aboriginal languages in the northern territory so translation is absolutely vital within whatever educational form we use whether it's around alcohol whether it's around schooling uh, whether it's around jobs
0: well just on schooling Noel Pearson recently gave a very interesting speech, I thought, on education. And he was stressing how vital it was that uh, Indigenous children get proper schooling and also the sort of schooling they get. I guess you'd almost say a more old-fashioned method of teaching people. Did you um, have any ideas on that speech? We
1: know that... Education is the key for all of our young Australians. Unless you have a good education, your chances of trying to get out of the areas of poverty are pretty slim. And if we can see in places like the Northern Territory and Northern Australia uh, opportunities for learning in environments where children from those areas can learn about their home country, their language, but also the importance of how to survive when they leave their community, to go to a bigger city or town or go beyond should they wish to do so. So education is critical and the kind of learning that should be out there should be uh, based towards what children are able to, to understand. But you do need to have the basics as well, Michelle, you know, the reading, writing, maths. Uh, there are certainly examples in the Territory where uh, particular communities have more of a school during the wet season so in the dry season they can go out on country and learn about looking after country and being with the ranger groups. So yes I think uh, each area needs to have a form of education that certainly uh, gives confidence to that child that they have a future.
0: Rightly there's been quite a lot of emphasis in recent times on people keeping their own language but how do you balance that and making sure that they have a really good command of English early so that they do have the sort of opportunities that city kids have.
1: Well there's probably two elements in answering that as well. Obviously people or children who speak in their first language or second language and a couple of languages that they have before English then there are speakers in that community whether it's through bilingual education who can teach both ways. So that's Important, so that that child remains strong uh, in understanding their own language plus English. But we're also moving towards, in conjunction with that, we're also moving towards all children having an opportunity to learn an Aboriginal language. So it's, you know, we're going out beyond just maintaining language. We want all Australians to have an opportunity to learn a language in their respective environments, state and territory jurisdictions.
0: Now, you were Minister for Children in the Territory Government, among other posts you held. From your own experience, what's your perspective on this dilemma involved in deciding whether and when to remove Indigenous children at risk?
1: One of the things I worked very closely on when I had the portfolio in the Northern Territory Government as Families Minister was the absolute importance of the kinship structure. That when a child is in a dire situation with their mother, with their father, that they have other options within their family network. And we did not have the strength of the kinship system which you see more of today. And that's thanks to organisations like uh, Snake at the national level but also other people who work in the uh, families area. Of course if a child is at risk, whatever that risk, they must be removed uh, to be safe. But one of the things I've always maintained then and continue to do so is that if we can look at the support of kinship carers for that child so that they don't always have to necessarily go to strangers. They go to people who do love them and care for them but may not have direct responsibility for them.
0: And how do you think that's working now? Is there a a sufficient
1: network to make it effective? I probably wouldn't be able to say whether there's a sufficient network. I would say that we have to continue to work at it. On a very personal level, it's something I do. I look after three children... Uh, in a very kinship environment, you know, an eight-year-old and twins who are nine, to be able to care for them, to give them an opportunity to go to school every day, to be able to sleep safely and soundly at night, but then to return home to their grandparents in the school holidays. Yeah. And so we are trying, you know, amongst our own family groups, to step in where we see problems. I know my own sister has done the same thing, where she's seen her grandchildren needed help, she wanted to step in before Department of Families stepped in and took them away. So there are family groups out there, and I speak very personally on that, uh, because it, it is very personal. And there are so many families, First Nations families across the country, who do do the same. The Northern
0: Territory government's come under a lot of pressure in recent days and I think on this whole alcohol ban thing, it seemed very reluctant to impose those bans. Do you think that that government has fallen down and do you think it has placed too much emphasis on the issue of, of racism involved in those bans and not enough on the rights of women and children?
1: I do believe the Northern Territory Government has certainly recognised where it may have been able to do things differently. But I also accept that not only the Northern Territory but the Federal Parliament uh, has to accept responsibility as well. That even with the previous coalition government who certainly in my view, and I did raise it in April last year, what was the plan coming out of Stronger Futures and there was no exit strategy. And I mean that in a, in a sincere way where if you're going to intervene in the lives of Australians uh, over 15 years, you've got to know that once you step out that something will happen. But there was no preparation of the Australian Parliament to look at that. Uh, that's a responsibility we should all accept uh, on both sides of government. And I know that the Prime Minister has accepted that by stepping in and doing what he's doing. Are we going to make a difference now? Well, I certainly hope so. But we have lessons, all of us, to learn from this. Now let's turn to the voice. From what
0: you're hearing on the ground, are you confident that this is the right time for the referendum? Do you think it will be successful? And what are Indigenous people telling you in the Northern Territory?
1: I am confident this is the right time, 2023, to embark on this journey. I know it's going to be tough. It's already started out that way. I am also mindful of the words that are being thrown around. We've learned from the campaigners of the plebiscite for the yes vote for marriage equality of how painful the debate can be and we know that that's already begun. Where First Nations people are questioned about their Aboriginality, where non-Indigenous people are questioning other things. So... There can be a lot of hurt thrown around, but I do believe that in the goodness of our country, Michelle, I I have this um, deep abiding optimism that no matter how tough it gets, you know, I, I do essentially believe Australians are good people at heart and that we will get to the other side of this. It is going to be tough too because we know that the history of referendums is such that only eight out of 44 have been won. So, of course, statistically, that in itself is a mountain to climb. But this is the time to bring our country together. And it's actually the journey and getting there, in my view, that's going to matter more, really, than what the outcome will be. Themes
0: of the uh, recent Invasion Day protests included uh, sovereignty before voice, treaty before voice, and, of course, we've seen the Greens, Senator Lydia Thorpe, defect from that party to the crossbench, talking about promotion of... Of sovereignty. If the voice passed, would the Albanese government move on to dealing with the treaty issue fairly soon? Mm -hmm. Treaty, after all, was part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, to which the government is committed in full.
1: Absolutely, we would then pursue our commitment to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, voice, treaty, truth. Uh, We've already begun conversations around a Makarata Commission and what that may possibly look like. We've been engaging with State and Territory Ministers or Premiers and Chief Ministers about the work they're doing towards treaty in their respective jurisdictions and even in South Australia towards a voice in their Parliament. So there is no doubt, uh, should we have an incredibly successful referendum, we will continue the work of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So how long do you think the treaty process would take? That's a good question. It would really be important to see where each state and territory jurisdiction is at. Uh, Should we be successful once we go to a referendum? The first thing, of course, would be establishing the voice to Parliament and that would be the first priority. So are we talking really about a national
0: treaty or are we talking about a series of treaties at state level or even regional level?
1: Well, this is a question we would put to the participants of The Voice, should we be successful? And this is what we want uh, members of The Voice to Parliament to be able to contribute to and advise on.
0: Now, there's a lot of talk, of course, about uh, detail or not enough detail regarding The Voice. Advocates point out that um, you would need fresh consultation with Indigenous people on the detail. However, given the long process to reach, for example, the Karma langton report that the government points to when questioned about the detail, why would you need another prolonged consultation period and how long would that take anyway?
1: Well, the detail will be left to parliamentarians and like any process in the Senate and the House, there would be... Mm -hmm. committee process which enables that conversation to take place it would not be unusual to be able to go out and consult as part of that process it could be as short as you know a couple of weeks to a month to three to six months Uh, it will really come down to Uh, what the parliament and the parliamentarians debate uh, should we be successful in going to the referendum. So
0: would that consultation process be driven by a parliamentary committee or would it be a separate on the ground going around all the communities process?
1: We still have the referendum working group and the referendum engagement group who are working on a number of areas and we still need to finalise some of that detail in terms of the specifics of what you're asking. I guess what I'm doing is pointing out if it came to the Parliament, then my assumption would be the, the processes that we follow through now with any Senate inquiry or joint parliamentary inquiry. And just finally, when would you
0: expect The Voice to be up and running? When do you think it would present its
1: first advice Well, I'd like to think as soon as possible, Michelle. That's what I would like to see. I mean, we would certainly appreciate having that advice on board as soon as it is very possible to do so. And I guess only time will tell to see how we go with the referendum. There's been some suggestions,
0: though, that it wouldn't be till 2025. Do you think it would be before that that it would be operating?
1: Well, it's been a long time of the last 10 years for this process and I think people have been very patient and very particular about their, about their research and about the work that they've done. And I would think that um, 2025 would be better than 2035. And 2024 better than 2025? <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's a case of uh, let's get to the referendum and let's win this and let's get moving on it as soon as we can. Alan Deary McCarthy, thank you very much for talking with us. It's been a a
0: big day of announcements and thank you for making the time. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.